Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, as the jobs data confirmed this morning, the labor market remains very tight in the U.S. To get a sense of what is going on underneath the headline data, we turn to Becky Frankowitz. Becky is the president of Manpower Group North America. She joins us from uh, on the phone from Chicago. Uh, Becky, thanks so much for joining us. Just looking at the headline number, obviously 263,000 jobs added, unemployment remains low, wages uh, percolating. If I were to take a look across the U.S., would I see a labor market that is fairly consistently strong across the U.S., or are there pockets of strength and or weakness? Yeah, so you would definitely see, with the kind of record unemployment we're seeing, you'd see strength across all 13 sector, sectors of the economy. So from transportation, utility, to durable goods manufacturing, you know, we're seeing double-digit intention in hiring, intention to hire, and we're seeing that play through with BLS reports every month. So very strong across the economy. So, Becky, one of the things, you know, I think we've all noticed over the last uh, 10 plus years is kind of the growth of this gig economy, people kind of doing their own thing. Uh, You go into any Starbucks, it seems, around the country and, you know, most of the people are sitting there with their computers open and they're doing something and they stay there for hours on end. Does the data accurately collect and, and accurately reflect those people in the economy, that part of the workforce, which seems to be growing? Yeah, so what I can tell you is it's definitely, we're definitely seeing growth. Obviously, that's the business that we're in, and we call it the consumerization of talent. So just like we're shopping on Amazon, consumers want to work when, where, and how they choose to. And to your example, that could include Starbucks, that could include remote working. Um, We did an assessment of non-wage benefits. You know, wages are definitely under pressure. And the number two most popular non-wage benefit is reduced flexible time and location. So people are looking to work when, where, and how they choose. It's interesting. Uh, just yesterday, Lisa Bramowitz, my co-host, and I, we were out in San Francisco uh, at a real estate conference there. And a lot of the folks there were saying, you know, not just in San Francisco, the Bay Area, but one of the big challenges for figuring out where to locate a business is talent and that there's this never-ending talent shortage. You know, what, are, what do you think businesses can do, should be doing to navigate around this talent shortage? Yeah, so a couple of things. First, we all have to be, you know, have to open the aperture to bring people in from the sidelines. So if you look at average unemployment, you know, we hit 3.6% today. By the way, the lowest since we in America put a man on the moon. So it's it's truly historic. I like that reference. Yep. Yeah, it's true. 1969, truly historic reference. Um, But we have to open the aperture because there are still pockets. So if you look at African-American unemployment, it's hovering right below 7%. That would bring in over half a million people into the workforce if we just got African-American unemployment down to the national average. True for people with disabilities, hovering right below 8%. So we have to open the aperture and bring people in. The second, and we're increasingly seeing this, is having employers relax the requirements around education or experience. So we know traditionally on any job description, It's four-year college degree desired, you know, MBA preferred, something like that. And there are many, many skilled trades that do not require a four-year degree, do require some type of certification, but don't require a four-year college degree. So we're increasingly having those conversations and clients are starting to respond. Right. One of the things that's, uh, you know, certainly been an issue in the labor 
community and the labor force and how the labor force is being deployed is, is automation and, if, and the impact automation is having on some, some traditional jobs within the U.S. economy and maybe displacing uh, some sectors of the labor force. How do you think corporate America is doing with kind of integrating automation and then to whatever extent needed kind of retraining those displaced workers? How do you think the U.S. Uh, business is doing there? Yeah, so first I would say the conversation has shifted, and we would say as it needed to, from a robot's going to take my job to how can companies help human beings augment technology. Um, so we're starting to see that, that conversation shift among, among companies. We just did a survey of 11,000 U.S. employers, and we asked a simple question. So not a 10-year view, but a two-year view. So in the next two years, how's automation going to impact your hiring? 91% of American employers said they will maintain or increase hiring. And interestingly enough, those that are automating the fastest were actually hiring the most. And so we definitely see that automation will come in and automate tasks. We'll see jobs shifting from things that are routine into higher order human capability. And there, were, there are definitely new jobs being created. So, you know, we're seeing it happen today. This isn't a 10-year horizon, but we're also seeing new, totally new jobs be created. One of the things in terms of dealing with some of the labor shortage that I, a new term I hadn't heard before is encore workers. What is an encore worker? <laughs> I love that term. So we're, I mean, it, it's amazing. So, you know, I know there was some speculation today on workforce participation and there was speculation, you know, it went down because boomers retiring. So what we are seeing is boomers in America are experiencing job gains at 2x their share of the population. So yes, they are retiring and then they're moving into encore careers. So not interested in working, you know, necessarily in the same company or the same um, in the same 70-hour work week, which right. we're you know seeing finally productivity start moving. So that was great to see today as well. Um, but they're moving into encore careers, things that are different, things that they have passion on, but still paid positions. So we're very excited about you know the the reemployment yep. of boomers in America. That's very very interesting. I think oh, at some point I might be thinking about that. Becky Frankowitz, <laughs> president Manpower Group North America, dialing in from Chicago. We appreciate uh, your commentary today here on Jobs Friday. Well, it is early May, which means it's that time of year again for the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholders Meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, widely anticipated. However, CEO Warren Buffett may face some tough questions about the company's lagging share price. To dig into what we might hear from this weekend's meeting, we welcome David Dietz. David's a founder, president, and chief investment strategist of Point View Wealth Management from lovely Summit, New Jersey. We also welcome Peggy Collins, investing team leader for Bloomberg News. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. David, let me start with you. What do you think is the most pressing message for Mr. Buffett to get across to his shareholders this weekend? Well, I think that it's ultimately going to be there will be life after Warren and uh, Charlie Munger depart from the scene. People are always looking forward. I think right now some of the Buffett premium has uh, escaped from the stock. There is concerns as to what the future might hold. So I think he has to lay uh, uh, has to allay concerns over what that would look like. So Peggy, I know you've gone to this meeting in Omaha uh, for several years. What, just give us a sense of kind of what the ambiance is there. What, what's, what's it like to actually go and be there? 
It really is incredible, I have to say. So every year that I've gone, I think of it and um, relate it to almost like a rock concert, except there's no music and there's no interactive <laughs> graphics. Okay. It's, it's basically two old guys kind of sitting on a stage and people line up starting at like four in the morning and that is no joke. And then when they open the doors around seven or 8 a.m., it is literally people run into the indoor <laughs> stadium to try and get a seat as close up to the stage as possible. And then they try truly sit there and answer questions for hours. They say every year we don't get these questions in advance and it's a round robin between some media and journalists and analysts and then they throw questions to the audience but they do it for about six hours. It's incredible. That really is. I mean, you don't see that. Obviously, you don't see that anywhere else, I don't think, in corporate America. Dave, David, I know you've attended this uh, uh, conclave uh, for many years. Specifically this year, um, Maybe one of the most recent transactions we've seen from uh, the company is this acquisition of Amazon. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett has uh, he preys on Jeff Bezos and Amazon for years, talking about what a skilled businessman he is. But he's also said he's an idiot for not investing in Amazon. Now, finally, we found out that there has been investment there. Um, I think you can reconcile it by saying that we've learned that it's by one of his lieutenants, either Todd or Ted. It wasn't by Warren Buffett himself. Of course, they also know this company very well because Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, J.P. Morgan have a consortium where they're trying to address spiraling healthcare costs. Yeah, exactly. So, Peggy, another you know, transaction. It's funny when you when we have this, we know the meeting's coming in May and a lot of, you know, Berkshire watchers kind of tell us, oh, watch, there could be some announcements in the weeks or maybe a month before in terms of big investments or big deals. And th this year was no different. We had Occidental Petroleum receiving a $10 billion, I guess, investment from Berkshire. What do you make of that foray into the energy space? It's interesting because one of the things I thought of this week when the reports were rolling out was essentially that in some ways it is Buffett style, right? He does look a lot at big things in the economy that he thinks are going to be there forever. So whether it's owning a lot of Coca-Cola stock, for example, because he believes that, you know, that will be a consumer staple for a long time, or it's railroads. I mean, people often forget that he's made a big bet um, on railroads over, over the years as well. So oil is just, you know, a major thing in the economy. But of course, it is in flux right now in terms of renewable energy and things like that. So it's interesting to see that he's doing this through financing and not necessarily making a call or a bet on a specific oil provider or company. He sounds like he's, you know, the banker to the oil patch here getting an 8% coupon, which is very uh, Warren Buffett-esque, I guess. You know. Exactly. Similar to what he did with some of the banks after the financial crisis. Exactly. And that's when his money was needed uh, the most. So, David, uh, just finally here, thinking about the balance sheet here, you know, I'm looking at the Bloomberg terminal and, you know, about $320 billion worth of cash and equivalents on the balance sheet for Berkshire Hathaway. What do you think they should do with this cash? Well, that's the central question because that could really re drive returns going forward. It, usually, there's three things. One is to, as Warren Buffett would say, bag an elephant. But as he kept, has kept saying for years now, it's not that easy when you have that much cash to put to work. There's only a few potential targets. He won't get into a contested takeover battle. So that's one item that people are going to be looking at. The other two things, of course, is buying back stock and paying a dividend. Now, the last one, he's consistently said no, but look for a dividend to be paid once he's no longer in charge of the situation. In terms of buying back stock, it makes all the sense 
the world. He's talked about doing it. We haven't seen much activity. Many investors are asking him to buy back $5 billion a quarter, and I think that could really juice the stock. Interesting. It seems like I don't know how you spend $320 billion. doesn't seem to be a big elephant out there. But David Dietz, founder, president, chief investment strategist, Point View Wealth Management, joining us on the phone. Thank you so much. Uh, Peggy Collins, investing team leader for Bloomberg News as well here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you for joining us. Well, the markets have been digesting a significant amount of data this week, including Fed policy statement from earlier this week. And of course, today's better than expected jobs data to get an assessment of the big picture. We're fortunate to have our next guest, Christina Hooper. Christina is chief global market strategist for Invesco. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Boy, 263,000 jobs was just a monster print. What was your takeaway from the jobs data today? Well, it's great to see such consistency and strength as well. Now we've got a six-month running average of over 200,000 non-farm payrolls. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, there are certainly a few areas that could be better. Manufacturing, for example, is disappointing. And I think that is a reflection of the U.S.-China trade war and ongoing issues with tariffs. Um, but in general, it's a really strong job re jobs report, and it's not hard to find a lot of, uh, it's hard to find a lot of issues with it. Yeah. Exactly. So that kind of ties in with, I guess, the Fed's assessment of how things are going. I think the Fed, if they probably sat back today, Chairman Powell and said, see, I told you, uh, things are going pretty well. I'm, we're kind of negotiating a soft landing, decent growth, moderate inflation. So what is your take on what you think the Fed's next move could be? Well, I think what the Fed's next move is going to be for a long time is nothing. Um, it is already in a position where it has uh, curtailed, I would argue prematurely, uh, normalization. It's curtailed balance. It's curtailing balance sheet normalization. It's also curtailing uh, a normalization of rates. And so I would expect it to be in a holding pattern for a long time, especially given what we're seeing with productivity, that we aren't going to have uh, inflationary pressures. But at the same time, um, it's fairly clear that Fed policy that if we were to lower rates, it isn't going to increase inflation because productivity is improving. Um, it's interesting. One of the things that certainly spooked the market, if we think way back to kind of December, one of the many things that was out there was some of the geopolitical risk, whether it's Brexit and the slowing growth in Europe or China, China and the trade talks and so on. What is your sense of kind of where those kinds of risks are today? Because we don't hear too much about them here in 2019. Well, we don't hear about them, but certainly they are very much present and I would argue growing. What we're seeing is these twin trends of economic nationalism and populism. And that's really manifested itself, for example, in U.S. trade policy. But we're also seeing far more of it in places like Europe. We just got the U.K. local elections yesterday, um, which showed that there's a lot of unhappiness um, with Brexit. Um, there was a rejection of mainstream parties. But in a sense, that was probably the most pro-EU um, yep. vote we've seen this year. Instead, what we've seen is just more of a push towards populism and nationalism and a move away from the EU. And that's, you know, I guess what we've seen in some of the economic data out of the European Union, that has not generally been well received. I mean, we've seen, I guess, slowing growth in Germany even. 
Absolutely. I mean, there are problems in the European Union, and I think it's complicated by uh, changes in leadership at the ECB. It's going to be hard for Mario Draghi to do anything this year that I think really stimulates and helps support the economy in Europe and also gives businesses confidence, just given that his, he's a lame duck uh, yep. ECB leader and he's going to be finishing his term at the end of October. Right. So coming, we're about, I guess, 75% or so the way through the earnings season here for the first quarter. Uh, I guess coming in a little bit better than expected. Maybe that's just because the bar was so low. What's your takeaway from what we've seen so far in earnings? Well, that's just right. The bar has been so low that uh, the response on the part of investors on markets has been fairly positive, um, that it is good enough this earnings season, especially in light of the Fed's really dramatic about face this year in terms of getting so much more accommodative and curtailing normalization. So given where we are, we've got, you know, a decent earnings outlook, for, I guess, for the remainder of the year. We have the Fed on the sideline. Yes, we're late in the economic cycle, 10 year-ish plus. Where are you thinking about in terms of opportunities for the market? Where are you suggesting that people really think about it uh, in terms of 2019 going into the next the following year? Well, I first would say that this is an environment that's going to favor risk assets just because of the Fed's change in stance. So my overarching view is that um, risk assets remain attractive, uh, including, of course, equities. Now, having said all that, I do think we have to worry about increased volatility. There's certainly a mismatch between market expectations and, for example, what the Fed is. Uh, plans to do, or at least we've seen that historically. We also have a lot of uncertainty in other parts of the world. And quite frankly, we also have to watch the U.S. economy. While things look great, um, we've gotten some concerning um, warning signs. Now, uh, just a few data points does not a trend make, but we've seen uh, a disappointing um, readings from the ISM manufacturing, ISM non-manufacturing. Um, we've seen two weeks of higher initial jobless claims, all of which can be explained away as aberrations, but we want to follow that closely in case they're not, in case they're suggesting some kind of slowdown. But in general, this is an environment that favors risk assets, but we want to be well diversified. We want to have exposure to lower valuation. We want exposure to areas of really strong growth. While the U.S. is growing nicely, um, there are parts of emerging markets that are growing um, uh, much faster, and so we want to have exposure there. Yeah, I was just, I was just thinking about emerging markets because it's when people say they're, you know, they're, they have an appetite for risk, that, that naturally leads me to think about emerging markets. And so, you know, and that's something I know people look at emerging markets a little bit different, like what, what's an emerging market, what's not an emerging market, how much risk am I willing to take? Kind of how, do you, how is Invesco viewing the emerging market space? Well, we're positive on it in general, but we would argue this is a time to be selective and discerning. This is not time to um, just throw oneself into an index, but instead look for those opportunities. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities in particular in Asia, EM, um, China, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, India. Uh, those are places where we can find some really attractive opportunities um, with high growth levels. So I'm guessing you're watching the U.S.-China trade negotiations carefully. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you and what, what do you expect? I mean, I think we're getting a May, June maybe announcement. 
So my expectation is that the U.S. is very eager to get a deal done uh, for a variety of reasons. And China is very interested in not making a lot of concessions. And that's been clear really by all the stimulus they've thrown into the economy to support it so it can get through these negotiations. Um, So my expectation is that we'll see minor concessions from China. And China actually may get a big win in this reciprocal enforcement agreement that seems to be, at least that's what the, the reports are, that that will be part of the ultimate agreement. Now, that's a short-term win, but it could provide headaches for years to come. Headaches for years to come. Yeah, it seems like the question really is when you think about the China trade deal, will it be a you know, kind of a headline type of trade negotiation or will there be something more substantive and that remains to be seen. Christina Hooper, thank you so much. Christina is the Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco joining us here in New York at our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Well, the fallout from the Mueller report continues as Attorney General General William Barr testified before a Senate committee earlier this week. To get a sense of what the impact is of this ongoing issue, we turn to Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Chris is also a former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, I just want to get your sense of what you thought of Attorney General Barr's testimony in front of the Senate and then his unwillingness to appear before the House. What is your take? Well, look, I think it certainly he raised a lot of questions in his testimony, and you could sense the frustration from Democratic members. Uh, You know, obviously, you look at the testimony through your own partisan lens, and that's unfortunate. This should be the Attorney General of the United States, and I think far too often in his testimony, he looked more like the president's personal defense lawyer. Uh, I think ultimately all of this back and forth doesn't get settled uh, until uh, the special counsel testifies, and I believe that will probably be in the next couple of weeks in the House. So is it – some Democrats are actually calling for Attorney General Barr to resign or even be impeached. Is this even appropriate or possible? Well, I think if he does not testify before the House, he will certainly be held in contempt of Congress. Uh, and, you know, that's not something to be taken lightly, although it doesn't on its own carry a, a huge punishment. I think this is part of a broader standoff between the White House and Congress. And you see this playing out not only with the attorney general's testimony, uh, you see it with uh, the, the Treasury Department's uh, failure to turn over the president's tax releases. There's an ongoing investigation of White House security clearances that's gotten bogged down in, in back and forth fighting as well. And so, uh, you know, from Democrats' perspective, this looks like across-the-board White House obstruction. This is a president who said uh, he's going to fight all of these investigations. And so normally uh, there is some kind of accommodation and both sides reach a compromise. It will be interesting to see if that happens here, given the bad blood on all sides right now. So, Chris, you mentioned that you thought um, uh, Mr. Mueller would testify in front of Congress uh, in the next several weeks. But it sounds like there's, they're really far apart on that. How do you think this will play out in terms of getting Mr. Barr in front of presumably the uh, Democratic-controlled House? Uh, you mean Mr. Barr or Mr. Mueller? I'm sorry, Mr. Mueller. Thank you. Mr. Mueller, right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think at this point the negotiations are happening between the House Judiciary Committee, uh, Chairman Nadler, directly with uh, uh, Mr. Mueller. Um, he, in the past, he, he's, not a, um, he's not a talker. Uh, so I think this will be a challenging testimony. 
Uh, on the other hand, based on the letters that he has sent to the Attorney General, uh, he clearly feels frustration, disagreement with the way that his report has been characterized. So he has an incentive, uh, I think, to, to, to be more forthcoming about this. The other broader challenge is that there's still material in the Mueller report uh, that probably can't be disclosed uh, in an open setting, in particular uh, those that are related to grand jury uh, materials. So, Chris, let's shift gears a little bit uh, to the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, another tough week for the administration. Um, Fed, I guess the Fed picks Stephen Moore dropping out of the running. Kind of raising questions here is what's what's kind of going on at the White House in terms of vetting uh, these candidates? You could argue they're, they're 0 for 4 at this point. Yeah, this is an unfortunate pattern uh, with this administration. You know, you've got a president who I think far too often makes his personnel picks based on how somebody appears on TV or – uh, in the case of Stephen Moore, you know, some favorable op-eds that he wrote, uh, and then prematurely announces those decisions before any vetting happens, uh, and then inevitably damaging information comes out and the nomination has to be withdrawn. If you talk to people who have been in previous White Houses, as I have, there is uh, an exhaustive vetting process that happens before anyone's name is typically put forward. Uh, you know, when I was nominated to be the Deputy Secretary of Labor, uh, they vetted me for months before uh, my name was even put out there. Um, that's the smart procedure uh, to avoid situations like this. But again, you've seen that time and time within uh, this administration. So what role can the Republicans on Capitol Hill do to try to make this a better process for the Republican Party and for this administration? Is there any role for Congress to say, listen, work with us, we can help you here? You know, and, and you can clearly sense the frustration on Senate Republicans. You know, a good example is, uh, Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania was out there uh, defending uh, Stephen Moore just the day before he, 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 um, he withdrew his nomination. So, you know, no one wants to be put out there defending nominees like this. And, you know, as uh, trying to be loyal to the president, they feel their obligation to do that, even though privately they'll tell you uh, and, uh, the concerns that they have. And actually they were very public about uh, their concerns, uh, not, not only involving Stephen Moore, but also involving Herman King. Do you think the White House will come back with a more traditional pick for these two open spots? You know, I hope so. I mean, these are jobs that should not be seen as partisan jobs. You want qualified people there. Uh, and, I, and, you, and with both of these picks, you either saw uh, ideologues or people who don't necessarily have uh, the kind of monetary background that would be necessary in this type of job. So I'm hopeful. Uh, but again, it's hard to always tell with this president uh, who catches this fancy. So, Chris, just finally, I want to just switch gears again to the uh, um, Democrats' uh, nomination here. The crowd gets uh, ever bigger. Uh, it appears that some polling data came out uh, recently that showed uh, former Vice President Joe Biden uh, in the lead. Do you consider him to be the front runner for the Democrats? I, I absolutely think he is the front runner. Although I take these polls with a grain of salt. At this point, they largely measure name recognition, and I don't want to diminish that because name recognition is an important part about um, getting elected or getting certainly nominated and then getting elected. Uh, but I think, you know, we are a long, long way away. Um, you know, um, it, it, there's going to be an increasing challenge on candidates to raise money uh, to sustain the large operations that, that they're now building in these early states. We're going to have the first set of uh, debates in June and July, and that'll create a winnowing process. So, uh, you know, these polls are interesting, uh, but I'm going to wait till the end of the summer, right before Labor Day, and I think we'll have a much better sense of where this race will be. 
Chris Liu, thank you so much. Chris Liu is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, the home of the NCAA basketball champions this year, I'm sure Chris is aware. Chris is also a former <laughs> Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Thanks, uh, Chris, for so much uh, for joining us here. A lot of news, obviously, coming out of Washington, and Chris is certainly a great person to kind of help us piece it all together. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.